This is Pop Health Week on Healthcare Now Radio. Pop Health Week is brought to you by Health Innovation Media. I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director, the producer and co-host of the show. Health Innovation Media creates thought leadership content that supports your value proposition via original or curated digital assets for omni-channel distribution and engagement. Connect with us at www.popupstudio.productions. Joining me in the virtual studio is my partner, co-founder, and principal co-host, Fred Goldstein, president of Accountable Health, LLC. On today's show, our guest is Linda Riddle, MS, Vice President, Strategic Initiatives at the Validation Institute. Linda is a population health scientist, poverty educator, and independent validator. With 30 years experience in healthcare, public and private health insurance, and health policy. She specializes in measuring outcomes for health and wellness programs such as coaching, behavior incentives, and novel interventions. Linda is also the founder of Health Economy, LLC, focusing on health policy and health data analysis. And with that introduction, Fred, over to you. Thanks so much, Greg and Linda. Welcome to Pop Health Week. Thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you back on and talking about some issues. We've obviously done some work with the Validation Institute and other things like that. But today we're going to talk about something really interesting and completely different in a sense. So why don't we start, Linda? Give our audience a little sense of your background. So I have a master's in health policy and management. Uh, the way this part of my work evolved was that in graduate school, I became very interested in the mashup of poverty, the social, biological, cultural, financial, medical factors all colliding together. And I've uh, maintained that entrance ever since. So what you've done, and we'll get into this a little bit, is in an area of essentially social terms of health, but really looking at poverty and its impact on people. Is that right? It's, it's a very much overlooked aspect of poverty is that it changes the way the brain works. So what do you mean by that? So, well, I'll, I'll give an example. We've all had our brains be a little more crowded because the pandemic made simple things complicated. Um, so things that you didn't have to think about before, like your school would be open for your children on Tuesday. <laughs> or that uh, there would be toilet paper and cat food on the grocery shelves when you got there. So all of these things became deliberate, effortful things, and it took up space in, in your brain. It took up some of your mental resource. Um, so the same thing is true when somebody is coping with poverty. There's always a crowded, uh, too many things demanding attention and not enough bandwidth, for lack of a better term, uh, to address them all. And so there, and you said it actually changes the brain in a sense. Yes. So uh, I'll, I'll give this example, and this will uh, tell you that you never want to be a sugarcane farmer in case you were thinking of that as a uh, backup plan. <laughs> <laughs> but sugarcane farmers are paid once a year. And uh, these researchers went and gave them, it's called a Raven's test or fluid intelligence test, right before their harvest, when the majority of them had pawned something in order to get by. And then again, after the harvest, 
and they had gained nine IQ points, the equivalent of nine IQ points, by simply having the relief of their harvest being over and their annual paycheck arriving. So they were cognitively better able to do the, the various aspects of a IQ test because they didn't have essentially the impact stress or their head filled with, I've got something pawned, I'm worried. How am I going to get it back? Yes, right, right. And we, we've all done something like this during the pandemic. So um, if you had a relative living in a nursing home, maybe you called every three or four days to see what the status was and forgot that the reason you were calling so often was was because it was your grandmother's birthday that you wanted to get there for, <laughs> right? Um, or, you know, you're so focused on getting everyone's uh, COVID test before the Christmas dinner that you completely spaced out your, that your daughter-in-law hates cheesecake. I mean, just, <laughs> you can't keep track of so many things. So what did this lead you to then do? Uh-huh. So I wanted people to understand poverty in a, in a different way. So there's a lot of conventional wisdom about poverty. And one of the conventional wisdom things is that people who are poor make poor decisions. Um, and so I created an experience for people to have their own brains crowded and for them to see how their own decision-making changes. So it presents as a game, it's called getting by, and it gives you true life experiences, all of the experience, uh, situations, we call them scenarios in the game come from research. And you have a certain number of assets to make your decisions with. You have time and energy, favors you can ask from family, favors you can ask from your landlord, et cetera. Um, you have 40 seconds uh, to take in the situation and make your decision. Um, so uh, you have to start juggling. It takes about 15 minutes or so before people have to start making decisions that they don't like <laughs> or were not their first choice. Uh, so people have to decide, for example, do they um, take the time and energy to talk to the emergency room nurse who's calling because you've taken your child there with asthma two or three times? Um, or do you not have the time and energy for that and hang up? Hang up on it because they just can't understand that you can't get to a doctor's office. <laughs> and, and in essence, what is the goal? Is the goal of the game to get people to better understand what the situation is like for people living in poverty? Yes. So it, it, um, it shows them that their brains respond in the same way. I like to joke with people after they're done playing about um, whether at some point during the game they thought about when they were going to take up yoga. <laughs> um, because there's no way for you to think of any long-term broad things when you're totally consumed with the immediate. Um, so they see that for themselves. They did the drive through with fast food because they didn't have the uh, time and energy to make dinner. Um, and then I tell them about the brain science so that a crowded brain, which is anyone 
has a crowded brain who has scarcity going on cannot make decisions the same way an uncrowded brain does. So for example, smoking, there's a lot of interest as always in getting people to quit smoking. Well, if your brain is entirely consumed with getting through today, food, childcare, work, transportation, etc., and smoking a cigarette is calming, that's valuable to you. Calming is valuable to you. Lung cancer at some future date is nowhere on your radar. It's just not relevant. Um, so there's actually a piece, I think it was in the Huffington Post that says, uh, was something like, uh, why I smoke. <laughs> and it was a person saying, exactly, it's calming today. It's like, it's kind of like self-care. And so your doctor saying you should quit smoking. That's the only time that I have with my sister-in-law on the back porch, or um, that's my break from the kids or what, whatever the case may be. Lung cancer is just not relevant. So well, who's, who's your target audience for this? So it's any organization that needs to work effectively with low-income children, schools, for example, um, or adults. Right now, I'm only focused on healthcare organizations and schools. Uh-huh. And they then can uh, get this game or have you come in and play it as I understand. Is that right? Yep. There's a couple different ways. Um, we're going to have an online version available that people can just uh, license and use. Um, and I have some schools doing that because it's, uh, you know, for medical students, for example, it fits within their curriculum and what they're teaching. And uh, um, another method is that I can facilitate them playing the game and the debrief, do the debrief. Um, and we're exploring um, also some follow-up services to help the people apply what they've learned. Mm -hmm. So who's, um, who's using it now or, or what's sort of been the reaction to it? People, people I don't want to say they have fun. <laughs> because it's not fun, <laughs> um, but uh, it's for someone who has the idea that people are in poverty because of the poor decisions they make, it's very eye-opening for them to see, I make the same decisions when my brain is subject to that. We all do, and we can look at the pandemic as for our own examples of things we've messed up um, or forgotten or whatever. So it's an aha moment. I've had, um, oh, like federally qualified health center people um, come and play. And the woman said, this certainly puts motivational interviewing in a whole new perspective. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, for those who didn't know, what is that? What do you mean by that? Or what did she mean by that? Mm -hmm. So, um, Lots of healthcare providers are taught motivational interviewing to coach patients into healthier behaviors, right? And um, so when you are um, doing that, you're making a lot of assumptions. So one is, and this is going to sound um, ridiculous, but one is that it would improve their health to stop smoking. It might not. Because... There are a thousand other factors affecting their blood pressure, their air quality, their uh, stress level, their biological um, uh, selves, 
and how they are in the world. Um, being a little bit calmer from smoking actually might be a good thing. Um, so knowing that what the person is coping with is really uh, the driving health factor. What I encourage healthcare providers to do is connect with something that's, I call it, in the tunnel. So you're, you know, a person is tunneled on the immediate, connect with something in the tunnel that's relevant to that. So the person who's smoking maybe has a toddler. The toddler is in the tunnel. If you could encourage them to smoke a little bit less around the toddler, um, because the toddler's health is important to them, that's a win. And it will help the toddler's health. So there's a lot of imposition of middle-class values and goals on these on people who have lower social economic status, fewer resources based on assumptions and the help can't get to them in a way. It's like it's a different language. So, so in essence, what you're saying is, we, as you said, it's a different language. If we don't, if we don't understand this difference, then our approaches are just wrong. Yeah. It's not going to help. It's like, um, and, and, I, I've been involved in, you know, uh, charitable efforts that make, have made these mistakes. So, for example, you might um, have a program through your church or whatever that gives away winter coats. Fabulous. And um, you had this idea, well, let's give everybody a printed list of uh, places that have boots. We're only doing coats. Or that have food. We don't do food. Whatever. Print culture. That's educated culture. So to us, we could use a printed list and say, oh, I can go to XYZ Church and get groceries. Um, you might as well have printed it in Swahili. Uh, that's not how an overwhelmed brain can take in new information. Um, a brain in that circumstance is going to take in new information by storytelling. So, oh, you're here to get a winter coat. Uh, I know that your neighbor, I don't know if any of this is in confidential information, but I know your, your neighbor also goes to Whitford's church um, to get groceries. You could ask her about it. That can work. It's someone they know. It's a relationship. Uh, and it's a way they can get information through storytelling or making, helping them to be the storyteller to help others. Fabulous. It gives them a sense of value and power that they are sorely lacking. They're you know, missing in their lives a lot. And if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Pop Health Week. Our guest is Linda Riddell, MS, Vice President of Strategic Initiatives at the Validation Institute. So do you teach the various ways to go about being better at this? So what I do, I have this, uh, I call it the eight F's <laughs> and it's, I know <laughs> it's eight factors, things that might be weighing on the person's mind that are hindering them from receiving the help you're offering. Um, so one of them is um, it's called fabric, but it's about clothes. Um, and um, diapers, which are clothes for young kids, that kind of thing. Um, so 
what I want people to do is sort of walk through their service with, I call it awkward eyes. <laughs> um, as they, they say, okay, the person arrives on the doorstep to my clinic. They got here by bus. To get on the bus, you have to have a shirt and shoes. And if the child is older than five, you have to have bus fare for them too. So it, if they look through with these factors at every step, it can trigger them to say, oh yeah, I assume they have clothes to get on the bus or that they have childcare for their child or um, that the bus schedule is convenient. So it's a way to force them to look at all of their assumptions. I don't have a prescription for how they respond. I'm introducing a new lens for them to consider. Got it. And so there's there's one side of it which is the the coach or the or the uh, care coordinator or whoever who's communicating with them, and obviously you're you're trying to teach them to do things differently. What are the are the key factors? Obviously, if you take people out of poverty, that reduces those stressors, those levels to load the brain. What are some of the things that can be done to take some of those those out? I mean, what are some of the things that you see as approaches to help care coordinators or something else do something to reduce some of that brain overload that people are getting? Yep. So one really important thing is hope, uh, which is a positive orientation to the future. The important thing about hope, though, is not to impose your hopes, just like we were saying, this person would have better health if they stopped smoking. That's not their goal. Uh, so if care coordinators, for example, could ask, what is your goal around this? And how can I help you to work toward that goal? Increasing some uh, positive orientation to the future, some sense of mastery, and problem solving, that's huge. And that can have a ripple effect on how they approach other problems. Maybe eventually they'll quit smoking, but I often say, and I'm, I'm really not joking, the best thing that care coordinator might be able to do for that person's health status is to get their car or tune up. Right, so there's things you could do to, you know, that's what I'm trying to think about, or what are the things that the care coordinator or, or another person interact with them that you could do to reduce those various impacts and and do that it, it's like uh, back in the day you say you know people can't focus on their health because their life gets in the way so let's solve their their life issues and uh, I guess this is sort of a similar thinking yes it's a little it's a little more indirect um, in terms of what you want to connect with is their priorities so like one of my mentors is um, Donna Beagle. It's very prominent in the poverty world. Um, she's now Dr. Beagle. Um, she uh, dropped out of high school. And the guidance counselor tried to persuade her to stay in high school so that she could get a better job. And Donna herself will tell you, if the guidance counselor had told her, you should stay in high school to be a better mother, she might have stayed. So part of the disconnect is that the educated people running these programs have goals that they think are self-evident and they're not. So to connect with what their goal is, and it may be something completely different, like if I could get to work on time every day 
and had a reliable car, that would improve their health, probably more than blood pressure treatment. <laughs> it's about connecting with what's important to them and in, in a language and a channel that doesn't uh, create more barriers. So for example, assuming that they can get the bus to get to your clinic. So let me throw this one at you, Linda. You are, you know, a, a person who sits there and validates the results of programs. And you're very good at that and analyzing. Did that, did the analysis they presented with me or the data they presented with to me really make sense? Is it, is it, is it structurally right? You know, can it be validated? So have you done anything or seen anything to show improvements in places that implement this? Mm -hmm. So I do have um, a partnership with a residency program um, at a local hospital, and um, they are going to assign it to a resident to do as a research project. Um, and I do plan to develop some other partnerships. I have other hospitals that are interested in using it. Um, and to do some follow-up instead of just the training, but as I said, also to help them brainstorm on how they apply what they learned and then how they track that. Yeah, I recognize it's early. You know, it's like it takes a while, one, to get the thing out and then to, to do some measurement, get some people involved and get enough to make it statistically significant and all the rest of it. And uh, but But it will be fascinating to see what the various impacts might be on improved health outcomes, you know, various depression screenings or stress screenings or Retention things like that. Retention and Yeah. And ultimately, costs maybe. You know, obviously there are a lot of issues ahead of that that need to be, that, that would show some real significant gains and be fundamentally important, to, you know, before you get thinking about costs. But just to be able to, and I know, you know, having worked with these populations for a long time, the, the, those folks in individual lower socioeconomic status, it is getting back to the basics in a sense. And if you solve the basics, you can see some great improvements. But it really is fascinating to hear about the impact on your brain and overloading that ability to make decisions and, and uh, et cetera. Yeah, I like to say it's not that people in poverty make poor decisions. It's that poverty itself shapes the decisions. That That is a fascinating way to look at it. So wh where where are you taking this to now? You talked about the... Um, so, you know, some of the groups in healthcare and things, and you obviously this program you're doing with this residency, which would be fascinating to see that study. Um, where, are you, where are you going with it now? So I have um, a real uh, goal around this to connect with K through 12 educators, in part because even a single teacher, even a single bus driver can make a difference in a child's life. And having that difference happen early on in their life, you know, the ripple effect is, is even greater. I mean, even like, you know, there's studies showing that kids who got Medicaid coverage uh, grow up to be more productive citizens. They're more likely to be employed, all, all of those kinds of things. So this is in a maybe a smaller scale, but um, I just love the idea of getting to a teacher who can affect children. So, yeah, let me get to that because it fascinated me with the way you started this and talked about the, the sugar cane. And, and so this is, in my mind, this is a fundamental issue that needs to be solved 
just for education. Right. So, um, for example, one of the situations in the game is that um, and when you're in the game, you're a single parent, but your uh, sister-in-law or sister or sister-in-law comes over with her six children because um, they've been evicted. So if you're a low-income person in an apartment, you are risking getting evicted by having six people camping out in your kitchen. So do you, do you take them in, risk eviction? Do you try to get them to a shelter? You know, so you face all of those options. Here's the kid coming home from school, and his teacher has the idea that kids should have homework because it teaches them how to be responsible. He can't do his homework, right? So what, in, what that child learns instead, he doesn't learn responsibility. He learns the school is a place where he can't succeed. And, and so that feeds itself. And that's what I was going to ask you too. So it seemed like the... And the, the issues being dealt with are from a adult parent perspective. Is there a child perspective or are you thinking about developing a child perspective to this? Yes. I've had educators play, the National Education Association played at one of their conferences. And what I did, I had them do an exercise. I had them pick out the situation that they hated <laughs> in the game, the one that really bothered them, um, and to step into it as the child. And coming to school the next day but yeah i've had a lot of people give me different ideas i had a, i had a guy the other day played his background was in the department of corrections and he said you could have a scenario card that says you get arrested and it wipes out all the assets on your board <laughs> wow yeah yeah when you think about all those fundamental issues that occur or that people are dealing with um pretty overwhelming i would imagine exactly exactly and and we've all been overwhelmed with the pandemic, right? I mean, we're all stressed. It's all in the news about how stressed everybody is. It's because simple things got complicated. Well, just imagine, as we know, the impact of laying the pandemic on lower socioeconomic groups. Yeah, and already food and retail are, you know, were highly impacted by the pandemic. They already had unpredictable schedules for their employees. So it kind of made a bad situation worse. Amazing. Well, it's fascinating. Thanks so much for coming on and talking about getting by. It's a fascinating game and I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And I'll send it back to you, Greg. And thank you, Fred. That is the last word on today's broadcast. I want to thank Linda Riddell, MS Vice President of Strategic Initiatives for the Validation Institute for her time and insights today. Do follow Linda's work on the web at www.lindariddell.net, and that's R-I-D-D-E-L-L. And finally, if you're enjoying our work at Pop Health Week, please like the show and the podcast platform of your choice, share with your colleagues, and do consider subscribing to keep up with new episodes as they're posted. For Pop Health Week, my co-host, Fred Goldstein, this is Greg Masters saying, I know. <laughs>